This June will culminate in the passing of another LGBT Pride Month, a commemorative celebration first observed more than 50 years ago. Although Pride Month has been acknowledged in varying capacities for nearly half a century, its endurance has been mired by decisive politics and a record-breaking year of anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in the United States alone. Despite this, scholars continue to explore the role of sexuality in private lives, from the retrospective discovery of transgendered people in historical archives to present questions of identity and representation in social media, with the understanding that those who identify as LGBTQ have always existed and have fought tirelessly to advance their rights. Of these rights, perhaps no questions are as pressing today as those pertaining to privacy. This is Megan Schaefer with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, our authors discuss LGBTQ privacy through both historical and contemporary lenses. For our first interview, Simon Joyce, the author of LGBT Victorians, Sexuality and Gender in 19th Century Archives, shared his argument for revisiting Victorian-era thinking about gender and sexual identity with my colleague Jack Dugan. Simon touched upon famous 19th century trials for indecency, such as those involving Fanny and Stella and, later, Oscar Wilde, trans pioneers like Dr. James Barry, and the very existence of Victorian trans pornography and the curiosities it arose. I'm here with Simon Joyce, Professor of English at the College of William and Mary. Would you like to introduce yourself at all, Simon? Yeah, sure. Um, hi there, my name's Simon. Thank you for inviting me on here. I've been teaching in the US for uh, 25 years now. This is my fourth book. My specialization is in uh, British Victorian and British and Irish modernism. So I tend to, to write particularly around the turn of the 19th century into the early 20th century. So this is in some ways a continuation of a book I did 15 years or so called The Victorians in the Rearview Mirror. And so it's sort of part of an extended thinking about ways of looking back at the 19th century. Wonderful. Uh, the 19th century was a period that paradoxically held strict rules for morality and an outward rejection of sensualism. Yet sexuality seemed to be a main topic of thought and Victorian erotica was being presented in art and literature. Can you briefly tell us about what inspired you to write LGBT Victorians? So in lots of ways, the, the, the way you set that up is, is almost exactly the claim that was made in a famous book 50 years ago by Stephen Marcus called The Other Victorians, in which he's making the argument that there's a kind of underside of Victorian attitudes that we can glimpse by looking particularly at erotic literature. And it came about because he was invited to go work in the Kinsey collection at Indiana University, where they basically opened up Alfred Kinsey's archives to Marcus and said, do what you like with this material and see what you come up with. So I actually started this book in the Kinsey archives because, and through a kind of uh, connected reason is that I was writing something for the 50th anniversary of the other Victorians. And at that point, Steve Marcus was still alive and we were doing a kind of honorary panel about it and so in order to do that I thought I would go to where he went uh, and I basically just it's a fantastic collection of printed and um, documentary material and so it was it seemed like an ideal place to, to do some thinking about what Marcus was doing but also try and think about how we might update that approach for the 21st century so his thesis in some ways that pornographic writing gives you a kind of uh, counter image to that sort of standard idea of the Victorians as this age dominated by sexual prudery and right, covering up, you know, 
table legs and all that kind of thing. Um, but the blind spot of his book is that he thinks that there was no queer pornography. And he has this quite elaborate argument for why there wasn't any. And what was odd about it, and one of the things I was there to try and find out is, was it there when he was there and he just for some reason refused to look at it? And it turned out that yes, the, the two most famous works of gay pornography were in the Kinsey collection when he made the claim that they didn't exist, uh, which struck me as quite an interesting blind spot. And so he makes this kind of complicated argument as to why there was no queer pornography. And so one of the first and sort of starting points of this was simply to try and figure out, well, what, what do we do with the 19th century if we start from the fact that those texts do exist and did exist? And so how can we then think about traces of LGBTQ people in the 19th century archive that either we haven't looked for or when we found them, we've then pretended that they weren't there? And so that was one of the starting points. I was also thinking very much in terms of our current moment. So I, I think of a sort of historical moment now as one in which this very successful set of acronyms and initials has been constructed where we've gone from lesbian gay or lesbian gay bisexual to now extend that sequence almost infinitely, the LGBTQIAA+. And so in some ways, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the, the kind of coalitional sense of that, but also the ways in which, and I think it's probably happening in the UK in slightly different ways than in the US, but there's a kind of fracturing of that coalition where there's particularly people identified as lesbian, gay or bisexual who are very much kind of interested in pushing out trans people or breaking that alliance or thinking that there should be you know, an LGB alliance only and so the terms of that coalition seem to be up for debate right now. Uh, and so one of the, the other reason I wanted to go back to the 19th century is it seems to me that's when that alliance was first thought of. And in lots of ways, some of the political arguments seem to, to sort of assume that trans people in particular are very new and they're the sort of last in, first out of that alliance. And so what I wanted to do in looking back over the 19th century is to think about ways that both trans people are there in that archive and that they were formative in the ways that homosexuality in particular was first thought of. So it's an alliance that's actually much older than people have assumed and has much more of a history that I'm trying to reconstruct in this book. On the point uh, you made about the archives, privacy would have presumably been a key consideration for LGBTQ plus people in the 19th century. Where did you begin to look in the archives for your research? And naturally, there's a reliance on medical and legal records. Was there much neutral or more reliable sources of material uh, for LGBTQ people in the 19th century? Yeah, I think this is always one of the issues of the archive is that the first place that you can find people is in either legal records or medical psychiatric records. Um, and I think the difficulty of that, as rich as that archive is, is it, it, it can tend to skew our understanding of history, which assumes that you know, all gay men were prosecuted, right? Or all trans people were somehow exposed publicly, either post-mortem or through some kind of legal challenge. Um, and I think that can compound this idea of a kind of repressive era, because what is hard to access then is of course the records of people who didn't go through the legal system or live very happily in their firm gender and, and never got found out. Right. And I think this has been the issue when people have done research and things like uh, female husbands, 
uh, Jen Mannion's book thinks about this too. Like, if we only have the records of people who got exposed and prosecuted, then it's very hard to create a kind of deeper profile of people who might never have made it into those public spaces. So I was trying very much, and this is one of the things that the Kinsey is very good for, because it, it's a really rich documentary archive that Kinsey himself constructed, um, more for the 20th century for the 19th century, but certainly has things like letters, diary writing, you know, photographs. Uh, so there is a kind of private archive, I think, of where you can find the records of people who didn't necessarily make it into those public arenas. Ironically, some of the richest things I found were letters and photographs that came up because they were introduced into the evidentiary record in legal trials and in some ways were done so to try and create a certain kind of prosecutorial narrative. But if we look at them now, they can tell us different stories. And so I think the, the most famous example of this is the Fanny and Stella trial, which some people know the Bolton Park trial of 1870. Two people assigned male at birth who were arrested in a theater for wearing dresses and then get prosecuted initially. The charge is going to be disturbance of the peace, but then gets added on conspiracy to encourage other people to commit sodomy. Uh, so very big public trial, every word of which is recorded in the public records office in queue. So anybody can go and look at it. But part of the the sort of uh, appendices of that are a series of letters written between the defendants uh, and photographs that they had taken of themselves that were then collected. And so you can kind of build up some version of what everyday life looks like from those private records, sometimes even though those were embedded in public documents. Uh, another legal case I look at is the Piri Woods trial in Edinburgh of two Edinburgh school teachers. And again, as part of the character references there, they introduced into the record letters they'd exchanged with each other. And so you can kind of come to understand a little bit of the kind of private life through that record. Um, the other really rich documentary archive here was the Unlisted Diaries, which are the source now for the Gentleman Jack TV series. And, and we're about to be, they've, they've only now been transcribed. But, you know, so there's a way, I think, to kind of work with the public and private documents in a way that can produce sometimes a different image of queer life in the 19th century. Did your archival research reveal how people maintained their privacy? A famous example of someone who did not live openly was Dr. James Barry, a renowned surgeon who was discovered to have been born a woman only after his death in 1865. Are there any people who openly expressed their identities in the 19th century? I'm glad you brought up, like Barry's a really fascinating example of, I think, you know, one of the things I was just mentioning, which is that really Barry's only identity only gets revealed post-mortem. And in the meantime, lived incredibly successful um, life as a surgeon, traveling around the world. Right? And if, if anyone's interested, and Anne Harmon's written a, a fascinating book about Barry, about, about five years ago that I like very much, that talks about the complexity of Barry's case. There's one issue that I think always, in some ways troubles the, the study of, of what we, if we think of Barry as potentially a kind of trans man in the 19th century, one issue that always comes up there is in some ways the question of economic motive, right? And in some ways, I think Barry's story then cuts differently than people like Fanny and Stella or some of the other cases. And because you know, there's always a sense that where people are affirmed female in the 19th century, it makes absolute rational economic sense to, to cross-dress. 
Right? And so Barry is sometimes referred to as the first woman to get a medical degree from Edinburgh University. And in some ways, that argument can sometimes complicate and, and kind of stand at cross purposes from trying to understand them in terms of gender identity, where there's, there's a lot more clarity in some ways for people who are assigned male at birth who then take on a feminine identity because there's, there's a sense that that economic motive is not really there. It, it makes no rational sense to do that in terms of the kind of privileges extended to men versus women in the 19th century. So, you know, that I, I think that can be a, a very complicating factor. And my book starts with an argument that happened in York as I was writing it when there was uh, a decision to put up a plaque to commemorate Anne Lister's marriage to Anne Walker at the Goodrum Gate Church in, in York. And one version of black, the first version referred to as a gender non-conforming entrepreneur. And there was a big outcry that some of your listeners might remember that wanted to insist on, on putting the word lesbian in there. And it, it kind of devolved into a one of those kind of skirmish wars between particularly thinking of her as a trans man versus a lesbian. And so the, and it's sort of complications of trying to then also think about, well, what was she doing as a as somebody who's a diarist, as an entrepreneur, as a business person, right? You know, like I think indicates a lot of the complexity of that case. Anyway, to answer the question, um, I, I was finding like very interesting examples of particularly what we might think of today as some trans women who live absolutely kind of authentically and publicly in the gender they affirm. Uh, and two cases in particular that, that really stand out, I think, in the book I'm writing. The first is, Partly because I'm, I'm one of the things I'm trying to do is trace the history of sexology, and so I have a chapter on Carl Heinrich Ulrichs, who is in some ways the founder of sexology, and he's absolutely fascinated by a woman in Berlin at the time he's writing. He's writing a series of pamphlets in the 1840s and 50s, and he's fascinated by this woman he reads about called Frederica Black, who has petitioned for a name change and for the right to marry a man, right? And Ulrich is trying to think about the, what is the, the nature of sexual desire. And so he coins the term of the, the earning initially, right? The earning is the male at birth, but, you know, attracted to other men. Uh, and then he moves to the earning. So there's the earning and the dieting, which is the kind of straight male object of desire. And then he, he splits the earning into the bibling and the, and the manling, right? the sort of feminine version, the masculine version. And at the time, he's still thinking the bibling is going to be attracted to manling and vice versa, and he's working with a lot of these gender binaries. And, and so the case of Frederica Blank like, does two things for his theorization. And one of them is to say, basically, Blank is the epitome of the bibling in its purest form. So in some ways, you know, to go back to the argument for a minute, is that in some ways the argument is that all gay men are are ultimately versions of that trans woman. Everybody else is just inhibited in some ways by social norms to not want to go as far as blank. And so in that way, it's this kind of idea that in some ways, like we tend to think in kind of category terms, right? There are sort of gay men here or bisexuals here, and there are trans women here, but, but in Oryx's thinking, they're all in some ways the same category, which I think was a kind of interesting way of thinking about these categories as being always already connected together. And the other thing he's doing is he's trying to make the very earliest arguments for marriage equality. And so, you know, again, all the way back in the 1840s in Germany, 
Bulwark's is he's the first person who ever has to petition a parliamentary structure in Hanover for the right to marry. And he's thinking particularly of the right. So the right of gay men to marry is argued by analogy to, first of all, intersex people, right? Who, you know, people of indeterminate gender, who he says, you know, it makes no sense for us to say that person can only marry men or only marry women, right? Because it's hard to make any kind of a priori arguments about indeterminate gender. And he makes the same argument for Black and says, here is somebody who has affirmed herself, has presented uh, a petition to change her name, right? Is living absolutely uh, as a woman and to deny her the right to marry a man makes no moral or legal sense. And I think what he's trying to do again is use her as the kind of limit case that says, if you can accept that argument for Frederica Blank, why can't you accept it for me or my friend or right, you know? And so there's a really interesting way in which I think a case like that that's kind of lived out in public becomes a way of making advocacy arguments for all works. And the other case I, I would point to is, is the one I already referred to is, is the Fanny and Stella case where my argument is that we have misread that case for 50 or so years because every historian who's looked at this case has always started from the assumption that these are cross-dressing men. And so the argument I make in the chapter is to say, if we think about that differently, if we think about them as trans women before there was a category of trans women, then the whole trial can, can be read very differently. And I think part of the argument I would make for that is, I, and again, as, as I was reading through those documents in queue, I think I was kind of reading them differently because I was reading with a different lens. And so, so one thing that stood out for me is uh, Stella's mother takes the stand and they ask her, so is it right that around about eight or nine, he became interested in, in female clothing? And the mother says, no, from about the age of four and really from about the first time that they could speak. Um, and so in some ways you can then say, right, because the standard argument of cross-dressing is again, is a kind of economic reason. These are people who've made livings as actresses, right, on the stage. Then I think to be able to point to evidence that says, in fact, this is somebody who expressed that interest way back when they were four years old. And you can also go past the trial and say, you know, even after they, um, the trial happened, both of them went to America and there's photographs of both of them, you know, in Stella's case, a decade later, still being photographed in female clothing. And so in some ways you can construct that sense of a life, I think, but that is, is not the, the way that we've typically thought about Bolton. Based on those examples, do you think there was a class or socioeconomic aspect to those who felt they could or couldn't reveal their sexuality? We obviously know the famous case of Oscar Wilde and the harsh punishment he received. However, did the lower classes receive the same treatment? I think the answer is almost certainly yes, that there's a different treatment depending on, on class position. And you know, one of the things that's quite interesting about Fanny and Stella is they're both from what we would think of as the kind of fairly comfortable middle-class background. So one thing that means is that they have the wherewithal to make this uh, a jury trial. And because it's a jury trial, then all gets recorded. And so in some ways, you know, we have the documentary evidence of the Fanny and Stella trial because of the nature that they were able to hire very important and, and effective lawyers. They could call surgeons, right? And the, the whole army of surgeons come and testifies on their behalf. So clearly it's very clear to say that that's not something that's afforded to 
to people of, of lower economic means, almost certainly. Right? There are the famous scandals of the 1890s, as you might know about the Cleveland Street scandal, which is a scandal in 18, I think 1890, um, which revolves around a kind of sex for hire network involving postal boys, and in some cases, very important aristocratic men who not surprisingly, for the most case, get to get to leave town before the, the legal implications are really happening. And in lots of ways, Wilde's trial comes in the shadow of that, right, where there, there are clear efforts made to keep Lord Alfred Douglas out of the trial and kind of to, to construct a way of prosecuting Wilde and Alfred Taylor that doesn't extend to Lord Alfred Douglas. So clearly there are ways in which the legal system you know, works to safeguard people of privilege to a limited extent. And I think I mean, one thing that's interesting about Wilde is that he's somebody that you might imagine is afforded those same privileges, but clearly in some ways it's not. So in lots of ways, thinking about the legal history is, is quite complicated. And, and so one thing that I was trying to do in, it, it's often been thought that the Wilde trial and the Fanny and Stella trial are sort of connected together, that in some ways they get a relatively light sentence, you know, because Basically, they're prosecuted for disturbance of the peace, which means you pay a, a relatively small fine and, and you agree to keep the public peace for a certain amount of time. And that's all that happened. So after two years of this incredibly salacious public trial, that feels like a legal uh, slap on the wrist. And so one of the ways in which typically people have thought about this is to say, aha, this trial happens a quarter of a century before Wilde. In some ways, Wilde pays the price for the relatively light sentence against Fanny and Stella. So what I've been trying to do by disentangling those cases is actually to try and track what happens in this incredibly rich history of people assigned male at birth who get arrested for you know, either for cross-dressing or, or in sort of sexual situation. And typically the same thing happens, which is that they then get some kind of sodomy or, or charge added on that can't be proven. And so one of the things that happens in the Van and Cell trial is this simply emerges and the judge says this, and I think the time says this in some of our coverage, there is simply no law against being out in public in female dress, right? Uh, you know, and of course they think there probably should be. But as I was sort of trying to track then, so what happens, you know, through the 19th century, and you, you can just sort of search up in newspaper archives, headlines that say men in women's clothing or something, and, and a whole set of legal cases pop up is that in some ways that, that charge gets lessened as the charges for homosexuality increase. And so there's an interestingly kind of inverse function where as, you know, the Labouchere Amendment comes in and people like Wilde are, are subject to, you know, really punitive punishments, right? The, that sort of slap on the wrist that happens to and Stella in some ways gets less and less. Right? And so I think there's a sense in which we could sort of trace out here that something that was assumed to go together, cross-dressing and, and homosexuality, is in some ways getting pulled apart. As far as I could tell, that didn't have a particular sort of class dynamic to it. They always feel like the need to punish those people, right? And because the law doesn't really allow them to do that, the assumption is always to want to charge them with prostitution or with sodomy charges that simply never stick. And I think in some cases because they were never true to begin with. That these were just what we would now think of as, as trans women. 
you know, not in every case, and in some cases, it's very hard to make that determination. But I think the failure of those cases time and time again might be an indication of a kind of culture that's existing that we haven't really been able to recognize, partly because we've been too quick to hold them into a narrative of male homosexuality. Can you please tell us a bit more about trans curiosity in late Victorian pornography? Yes. Um, I should say before I answer that, is that I've kind of coined this term in a slightly different way than people might be used to, because typically trans curiosity refers to people who are curious as to what it would be like to be trans. And so I'm using it in a slightly different sense is because I was interested in more in how we think about people who were attracted to people like Frederica Blank and, and Penny and Stella and, and what was the nature of their curiosity. So I'm using it in a slightly different sense. But there was clearly, you know, to go back to the, the Blank case, there was that man who wanted to marry Frederica Blank. Um, and in a case of, of Penny and Stella, there's a network of people who are exchanging letters with them, having dates with them, buying photographs of them, right? And so they exist in this, this really fascinating network that's you know, in lots of ways, the equivalent to the networks that exist around actresses of the 19th century, but way more famous actresses, the sort of Lily Langtree, Sarah Bernhardt type people. So there's one person in particular that got me thinking about this is that, so there's a couple of co-dependents in the Fanny and Stella trial, and they both live in Scotland. One of them works for the post office, and one of them, I think, is, is part of the American sort of ambassadorial function there um, and he's the person that we that we understand uh, we have the photographs for um, his name's John Fisk and so they find him through letters found in the place where Fanny and Stella go to get dressed up uh, and they raid his house and they ask for and I've forgotten quite the sequence here but they know that he has some photographs of Stella in particular and he won't give them up initially and it turns out he's got them hidden in his fireplace. Uh, and so they produce a warrant and he says, okay, I'll go get the photographs for you. Because he doesn't want them to know where they are and they're in a box hidden in the fireplace. So they're, they're absolutely lovingly collected and hidden away. Uh, so when this comes out in the trial, everybody thinks that we're gonna get these incredibly salacious pictures. And so there's, there's this really heightened sensationalism around these photographs. And again, because those photographs then become part of the, the evidence, we can, we can look at them now. And they're not at all what people think they're going to be. They're basically just the images uh, that you would have of any actress who was performing on stage. They're stage photographs in costume that were designed to promote the plays that Fanny and Stella were in. Uh, and so you always sort of feel in the trial as this kind of disappointment because the prosecution has, has led people to think that they're going to see something incredibly revealing and erotic. And it turns out they're not at all. So I'm sort of interested in curiosity in that way too, which is something I think that, that trend studies is still, you know, shies away from thinking about sometimes, which is what's the erotic appeal of the trans body is, is what's getting signaled at this moment. And so interestingly, then the defense calls two photographers to the stand who took these pictures and they say, yes, we took these pictures just like we would take pictures of any other actress who's performing in a play. So that's part of the story, is that, there, that we have a kind of visual imagery of Fanny and Stella, which is incredibly rich. Right? And, and there are, and I already mentioned, photographs of Stella in particular that were taken 10 years later in New York by uh, Napoleon Sarony, um, who's famous for taking almost every picture of Oscar Wilde that you've ever seen from 
the New York tour is by Sarney. He is the leading photographer in New York of celebrities, but particularly actresses. And so he takes the pictures of, of Bernhardt and Langtree when they come there and Wilde. Like there's a very famous court case around this about copyright that goes to the US Supreme Court. And so, I mean, partly what I'm fascinated with is that Stella gets photographed just like all of those incredibly famous actresses in the same studio with the same lighting, in the same poses. And I've taught class on this where I, you know, displayed images of five or six actresses of the period and said, you know, can you spot the trans woman, right? And, and most of the time my students have no idea. So there's something quite interesting about this, you know, I think that then to go back to uh, just a kind of very long way around the sort of question about pornography is that because those moments of the trial are not as exciting as people think they're going to be in some ways, then there's a sort of second life of Annie and Stella where they become the subjects of two of those really famous pornographic works that I talked about at the beginning that Stephen Marcus knew of and pretended didn't exist. Uh, one's called Sins of the Cities of the Plain, the one's called Letters from uh, Laura and Evelyn which then pornography is is able to imagine the story of the trial in the ways that people wanted it to be um and so so the other example i give this there's a ball that's part of the the prosecution evidence right is that there's what we would now think of as a drag ball that was a place called haxtell's hotel in london and again the prosecution wants this to be one of those kind of signal moments of the trial in which we can point to sexual, you know, sort of scandal. And in fact, as people testified, including cis women who were there, is it's absolutely a kind of a model of decorum. Um, Stella sings a song that she performs on musical stages. There's a musical act from Oxford called The Shooting Stars performs. Uh, everybody's dancing and having a good time and nothing happens at all. So in Sins in a Plane, what they do is reimagine that scene as a kind of bizarre orgy of kind of trans and queer um, couplings. And you sort of get the sense that that's what people wanted the Penny and Stella story to be about. And so pornography exists as partly as a kind of compensation for what turns out to be the sort of non-sensationalism of the trial. Uh, but really what's interesting about that then is to think, well, why do people want that? Like, what is the nature of that curiosity? Uh, and so Lisa Sigel, who's a, a really great historian of Victorian pornography, uses this phrase about the social imaginary of sex that pornography can, can get us to, which is in some ways kind of not so much what were the arrangements of sex and gender in the 19th century, but what was the imaginary arrangement of those things? Because porn doesn't have to think about actual existing possibilities and right right can kind of and so it, it gives you a kind of access to exactly that element of kind of fantastic curiosity that for me indicates that there's something again in kind of marxism that's existing beneath the surface that things like trials and medical textbooks can't ever quite get to but you can get to sometimes by reading the erotic literature of the period and the other example I give of this is that one of the things I, I sort of track through the book is a series of kind of gay male um, thinkers, all of whom get stuck on the idea that what they would really like to try and imagine but have problems imagining is some relation of kind of mirrored reciprocity between two men who don't have to organize themselves 
either in a kind of class hierarchy as rich man, poor man, or old man, young man, or in gender terms as manling, bibling, right, or in racial terms, right, but actually just exist in some relationship of equality in the way that we might imagine same-sex relationships now. And I sort of struggled to find anybody who could really articulate that, though there's some models in the 19th century, and Walt Whitman's poetry is one of the places where they looked for it. But, you know, there's a pornographic text called Telony, which is sometimes ascribed to Oscar Wilde and others, though it's, I think, debatable whether Wilde had any hand in this at all. But it's the first time where I can see somebody who really can imagine that kind of relationship, where there are two men who are in love with each other, right, who simply don't have to organize their relationships around some hierarchical sense that one is more important than the other, better educated than the other, knows more than the other, richer than the other. So again, if we're trying to look ahead from the 19th century at where more familiar models of, of either trans or, or queer experience can be found, sometimes you can find them in this sort of imaginative fantasy literature. You argue that Oscar Wilde, whose sexuality and gender was questioned in the case of Wilde versus Queensbury, shouldn't be the key figure in our understanding of queer people in Britain. Who stood out to you in your research? So one way I can think about this is, this is where I end up in the book, is that, again, with, with a little bit of generalising, I think there are sort of three paradigms of, of queer desire in the 19th century, and I've sort of alluded to them a little bit. So... And in Britain, I think the dominant one is the one that people like Wilde will be exposed to in privileged educational spaces, um, and in particular here, Oxford, and was rooted in a reworked version of classical Greek pederasty. Linda Dowling wrote about this, the way in which people like Plato get installed at the heart of the Oxford curriculum, and that then bleeds down into the public schools, and, and suddenly there's a way in which people are reading the symposium, right? And that's very much invested in exactly those hierarchical models of age-differentiated and class-differentiated power. And that's the first model, and in some ways the dominant one, and that's being challenged, I think, through that sexological model that's emerging, particularly from Germany with people like Ulrichs. And what's interesting about that is that it's very much thinking in, of sexuality in terms of, of gender expression and identity. And so Ulrichs is the person who who coins the famous Latin phrase that typically gets glossed as something like a uh, female soul in a male body, which is definition of, of the gay man. And so that, that model is emerging, which I think comes into conflict with the classical pederastic one. And the third model is what I was just talking about, right? Which really Whitman is, I think, most responsible for disseminating, which is this idea of what he calls the true love of comrades or the manly love of comrades, which is really about a more democratic organization of desire in which you can love the same as same without immediately trying to kind of re redraw that same in terms of some kind of differentiated hierarchy. So I so I'm trying to think about those three as the as the models that are available in the 19th century. And of the three, Wilde is very much somebody who remains committed to the pederastic one, even after the trial. So I mean, he reads Whitman and he's very much interested in Whitman as a student, but, but somehow that kind of democratizing impulse to, to rethink relations of sameness never quite works for a while. Um, and so in lots of ways, I, I feel like that's, if we look forward from the 19th century, that's both the most regressive of the three models and also the least useful. 
it's the one that, that clearly is outdated in a way that the other two still have some kind of purchase. Right? Um, and so if we're thinking particularly about one of my starting points, which is thinking about that alliance between lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and say trans and intersex people on the other hand, then sexology has a way of thinking about that and thinking about commonalities and the ways in which you might imagine them as having some kind of coalitional interests. And in some ways, the, the difficulty with sexology is it's too much invested in gender hierarchy. So, you know, that assumption that the manling can only desire the bi-blank and vice versa, right, feels again very, very dated, right, and something that, that lesbians are gaming in a particular contest in the 20th century. And then there's the model, the sort of Whitmanite model of comradely love, which I think can kind of imagine relations of mutuality and reciprocity, but is also a little bit like the pederastic one has a kind of aversion to gender nonconformity, which is, I think, sort of built into its language of kind of healthy masculinity and, and the manly love of comrades, right? Um, that again feels like it, it exists in a tension with sexology. You know, out of those three models, I think the the second two have some kind of purchase on, on the present day. So in some ways, what I'm trying to do is kind of trace through in the, the sort of central section of the book is in some ways a, a tracing out of, of what happens once that sexological model emerges. And so I, I sort of trace out how Ulrichs comes to think of it, how he comes to refine it. Um, I give, a, I think, a more nuanced version of that than is typically understood when people just think all he ever said was that gay men are female souls and male bodies, which he says, yes, but under incredibly qualified circumstances. Right? And so I try and sort of trace out what happens when that model meets the, the kind of classical pederastic one in some ways. And so I'm thinking about, again, it's all back to those privileged men, but people like while John Addington Simmons and Edward Carpenter in particular. But of the three of them, I think Simmons and Carpenter wrestle with the implications of sexology in a way that Wilde is never quite able to. And so that's the sense in which, you know, they have central chapters devoted to them. Wilde has a kind of coda at the end of my book, because I feel like it, it's that process of wrestling with, in some cases, resisting, but trying to take on board insights of sexology that seem really important to me. So if I had to put for one, I'd probably say Carpenter, partly because Carpenter also exists in a kind of network of democratic socialism. He's Cambridge educated, but lives his life in the North in Sheffield in working class communities. He's very much more as a sort of political figure. He's much more in dialogue with some of the kind of new feminist thinking of the new woman thinkers of the 1890s. So I think that's the other part that for me is very important and feels much more progressive than, than always assuming that, you know, Victorian homosexuality begins and ends with Oscar Wilde. As fascinating as I find Oscar Wilde, right, for me, he's not the end point of that narrative, right, and we shouldn't think of the history as somehow only leading up to his story as, as moving and historically important as it is. Thank you so much for coming on the Oxford comment today, Simon. Uh, it, it was wonderful to be on. Thank you so much. Our second guest is Stephanie Duguay, the author of Personal But Not Private, Queer Women, Sexuality, and Identity Modulation on Digital Platforms, 
Stephanie spoke with my colleague, Amy Britton, about digitally mediated identities and how social media platforms and dating apps in particular act as complicated sites of transformation. We're here with Stephanie Duguay. Please could you introduce yourself for us and tell us a little bit about how you got into your field? So I am an assistant professor in communication studies at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Um, I've been there for about the last five years. I like to think of my research as starting quite a while ago <laughs> in my mid-20s. Um, I was uh, in between degrees. I had finished my undergraduate degree at the University of Lethbridge in sociology and psychology. And then I was just uh, sort of working nine to five. Um, like most people in uh, the 2010s era, I was active on Facebook, had a lot of Facebook friends. And um, I decided, okay, now is the time for me to come out. And so I made a very subtle coming out post. Um, folks can read about this in the prologue to the book. Um, I think I shared uh, a survey <laughs> about bisexual people. And I just said very subtly, you know, it's great for there to be research about us or something along those lines. Um, and then posted it to my Facebook. But for me, this was a very big moment. You know, I thought, okay, that's it. I'm coming out. I have so many Facebook friends at this time. People will see this. And it was pretty anticlimactic. Um, it got about six likes. Um, it wasn't really a big deal. After I posted it, because for me, it was a coming out moment, I knew that it was also really important to talk to the people who were close to me in my life. Um, so I basically hit send uh, or post on Facebook. And then I called my mom <laughs> because uh, I'm very close with her. And so uh, unfortunately, I couldn't get a hold of her, though. And so this post just endured on Facebook. And I didn't end up talking to my mom that, that day. The next day, her best friend approached her and said, hey, did you see your daughter's post? Did you know? Um, and my mom was taken off guard. And by the time she called me and said, hey, why didn't you tell me first? I was also taken off guard because I didn't anticipate that, um, you know, her friend, even though we're Facebook friends, we're not, we don't talk a lot or very frequently. And so I didn't envision her as the audience for my post. And this was my first experience of what social scientists have written about as context collapse on social media. And so this spurred uh, my research interest in how people represent their identity on social media and how people specifically represent um, aspects of identity that can be more sensitive or historically or presently have been stigmatized. Um, and so that led to my focus on sexual identity and LGBTQ plus identities. Um, so then I, that sparked the research for both my master's and my doctoral thesis. And then I went on to write this book. That's really interesting how your sort of your personal experiences informed your research. So thank you for that. That's really interesting to know. Um, so as we've sort of just touched on, you've done a great deal of research into social media and the public online sphere of queer identity. So how do you think that social media has affected the representation of identity? <laughs> in so many ways. Um, and we know that it's not just social media, right? There's been a progression where people have used mediated technologies over decades um, to represent different aspects of their identity, right? So whether it was um, dial-up bulletin board services or early web portals, 
um, or early dating websites, you know, people have found ways of using technology as an extension of their self-expression. In the book, though, I do focus on social media, and I focus on the ways that both individuals and today's platforms are shaping expressions of identity. And the core concept of the book is one that I call identity modulation. And so this is the ongoing process by which individuals and platforms shape self-representation. And so on the individual's side, now you get on a social media platform, you have a range of features um, for posting about yourself, for putting different details about yourself out there. Um, but on the platform side, platforms also um, treat different posts differently. They treat your data in certain ways. Um, they, you know, garner particular populations of users and not others. And so there's all these other factors that are outside the control of the individual as well. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of what I look at really in detail across um, dating apps, across Instagram, uh, the video platform Vine, uh, which doesn't exist anymore, but um, is a lot like TikTok in these ways. And so looking at how each platform shapes self-representation. If you break it down further, there's three elements of identity modulation that I identified. So um, these are points where both the individual and the platform kind of lead to adjustments in how someone represents themselves or how a, re a representation of oneself circulates in the world. Um, so the first of these is personal identifiability. So an individual can decide, okay, how socially identifiable or legally identifiable do I want to be on a platform? Do I want my face in these photos? Do I want my name to be used? But then also platforms develop, you know, features, whether it's features for anonymity or features and policies that require us to use our legal names or our socially recognizable names. And so personal identifiability is one of those elements that can be adjusted in self-representations. The second is reach. So when I go to post on social media, I can often on a lot of platforms choose, okay, am I going to direct message someone or am I going to post something that goes to my close circles of friends? Am I going to post something that is um, public and anybody on the platform can can see it? Can I, or am I going to post something across platforms and that's going to have a very far reach? Um, platforms themselves also have these um, features that either allow for kind of very insular conversations or very broad conversations. And then the last element of identity modulation is salience. So this is really the question of how recognizable is the identity information that I'm putting out there going to be, right? So um, do I as an individual have the ability to kind of code my message so that only specific audiences know what I'm talking about, right? So in some of my research, for example, young people who aren't out to everybody in their audiences um, on social media might say like, okay, well, you know, I'll post a lot about Lady Gaga or RuPaul's Drag Race and my friends will get it and we'll have fun chats about it. But my grandma, who doesn't watch those shows or know about Lady Gaga, she's not going to know. You know, she's not going to suspect until I'm ready to tell her. Um, so that's, you know, on the user side, having a lot of 
power over salience um, and the recognizability of your self-representation. But on the platform side, you know, sometimes uh, we're limited in what we can put out there about our identity, what the identity fields are in our pro profiles. But then also there are certain platforms when you think about the kind of appropriate content or the most common content you come across on that platform, what someone might want to post could really contrast with those dominant platform practices, right? And so, uh, for example, you might end up with a platform that has a dominant population of heterosexual users or like cis heteronormative users, cisgender users, such as, you know, a dating app like Tinder that's really popular in the mainstream population. Then if you have someone representing an identity outside of what's expected on the platform, um, that could be seen as salient, but in a negative way, right? And so, for example, you know, on Tinder, it's very much assumed to be a lot of the time a cisgender and heteronormative app. And so uh, transgender users putting their transgender identity out there are often met with reporting of their profiles and discriminatory remarks, right? And so there are things that platforms also do to normalize certain practices of use as well. So... <laughs> My book encourages people to take into account um, in their experiences of social media, but then also for scholars in the research of social media, all these different factors that go into making a self-representation. Thank you for that answer. That's that's so interesting. And I think it's really important in a way to look at um, all of the decisions that individuals have to make when sort of looking at these platforms and how they're going to identify in such a public sphere. Um, so we've kind of touched on this already, but um, to get a little bit more granular, what do you think the opportunities that the digital age have afforded for representation and what challenges face individuals as a result of increased online presence? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, there have to be opportunities. There have to be potentials, otherwise people wouldn't use these technologies, right? So in my interviews with social media users, especially LGBTQ plus users, and especially the book focuses on lesbian and queer women, um, I found that some of the opportunities were, you know, um, interpersonal connection, right? So <laughs> I get the question a lot as to, you know, okay, you study dating apps as part of your research, Tinder and other dating apps, do people actually meet on these apps? Because they assume that everything is quite negative about them. But no, my participants told me the whole range of experiences and stories you would anticipate when someone goes out to with, with the intention of meeting new people in their lives. And so, yes, there were experiences of catfishing and deception, but there were also experiences of meeting new friends, uh, sparking new relationships, and sometimes relationships that then went on to be long-term relationships. So interpersonal connection is a really pivotal uh, outcome of a lot of digital media use, app use, and social media platforms. Another opportunity that we're seeing increasingly these days is people sort of self-branding and marketing themselves on social media. <laughs> Everybody these days is pretty Googleable. Um, and the opportunity side of this is that it can lead to um, greater economic opportunities, right? So I spoke with, for example, um, queer women who 
uh, are tattoo artists or models and using their social media accounts to promote themselves. Um, so if you're a tattoo artist trying to get more clients, but also trying to get clients that make sense for you as as a queer person, right? So one of my participants told me that it's also by posting photos with their partner, it's also a way of screening out homophobic people that might come into the tattoo studio, right? So giving you a bit more autonomy about how you brand yourself, how you put yourself out there across a sort of creative economy. And then another potential was um, political potential, right? So really uh, giving a platform for LGBTQ plus people to speak out about heteronormativity, but also about intersectional issues. So um, on Vine, like I mentioned, you can imagine it having been a lot like TikTok with its short videos that loop. The creators that I was looking at on that platform, these queer women were speaking out against heteronormativity. They were often speaking from a point of personal experience with discrimination and sometimes intersectional discrimination against, um, you know, so both like uh, experiencing homophobia and racism at the same time and making videos that directly call out that behavior, but also sometimes making humorous skits that make fun of it. And these get wide circulation and they make people question dominant norms and forms of discrimination. So those were some of the opportunities. On the flip side, I can talk about challenges. There's quite a few of them. So with that last example, for for instance, uh, if you're putting yourself out there on a platform and you're making very strong statements um, that have to do with your identity, but also that counter um, particular uh, sets of norms and political values, then you can also become a target. And this is what some of the people that I spoke with experienced is becoming a target of harassment and just uh, having to deal with a barrage of negative comments or um, discriminatory reporting of their accounts. So users who haven't actually violated the policies, but then getting a sort of dogpile of users that are just angry with their content, reporting, reporting, reporting until their posts are removed or their account is in danger of being removed as well, which is a problem <laughs> if you're also using your account um, to represent yourself and possibly represent what you do for a living. So I think one of the main challenges is that there's not a lot of recourse for users that experience this. Yes, the platforms um, that people are on these days have, you know, what they call community guidelines. They have different uh, you know forms of moderation that can involve automation and ai and also human moderators but time and again i heard from social media users that they really feel like there are not a lot of options that even you know if you report and block people who are harassing you they're just going to come back through different accounts um and that the platform policies a lot of the time don't take into account this form of discrimination, this way that content moderation and reporting can actually be weaponized against groups that um, certain populations on the platform don't like or disagree with. So that's one of the main challenges. Yeah, it seems as though it's almost a double-edged sword in a way. So because identity is so enveloped into so many aspects of people's lives with the rise of influences you kind of touched on from quite small scales to people with huge platforms, 
from both ends of the scale. Um, but yeah, support seems to perhaps fall short in a lot of cases from a lot of those platforms. So yeah, thank you for touching on that. Have you observed any instances of the weaponization of identity politics by those claiming to belong to these spaces, whether for financial gain or for online clout? Do you feel this is a trend or do you think this is an issue we'll need to deal with going forward? And do you consider this to be an abuse of progress? So identity politics online, um, obviously this is a very complicated topic. Uh, so the first aspect of what you asked about is, you know, people who seem to be kind of building up this persona in relation to an element of identity, whether that's, you know, uh, a lesbian persona or a gay persona or some other sort of identity uh, related persona and potentially profiting off of it, right, in terms of commercializing it um, and making money out of their social media presence as such. And yeah, <laughs> this happens, right? But I'll, I guess in this sort of line of questioning, what I want to point out and what the book kind of gets at, uh, especially in the chapters concerning Instagram, is that we have a platform ecology these days, a platform landscape where there is a lot of push to try and commercialize your identity, right? That what gets attention online is personal, also, the personal is political, and people and posts and content online get a lot of attention when they galvanize um, the emotions that we have attached to the personal and the political, right? And so something that really enrages us <laughs> will be something that often we engage with or something that we find confirms our identity or that we agree with. We might also engage with that. And because engagement gets turned into data and metrics on platforms, then this is good for platforms, but it, it has also become one of the main sort of industries or forms of economic functioning online that we see, right? And so when you see someone who has turned their identity into their self-brand, I would challenge you not necessarily to judge them as, oh, that person has just sold out. In a way, they are also they're part of just this digital economy that we have these days, where there is an imperative that if you're going to make it as a person, as a creator, as someone whose business has become engagement online, then you have to use some of these mechanisms around identity and attention. Um, so I think what that should kind of do is give us pause to look at these mechanisms of profit online. <laughs> Why is it profitable um, to brand your identity in this way? Why are attention metrics set up so that the most enraging content is what circulates the furthest? Um, so we need to look not necessarily at individuals, but at these broader economic and digital structures that reward this behavior. So that's one side of it. <laughs> the other side of identity politics is just for me, watching uh, the fiery, you know, flame wars play out, uh, Twitter has become a very unbearable place <laughs> these days if you're someone with um, a marginalized or, uh, you know, politically contested identity. And uh, I think one of the things that we're seeing that I've seen in some of my research and that other scholars of digital media and sexuality studies are seeing is that um, 
these broad platforms with many, many different audiences are not necessarily the most effective spaces for a lot of LGBTQ plus people to be in. So we're seeing a return to smaller digital spaces, for example, uses of platforms where um, you can really determine who is it that you're talking to and you can have a smaller group, right? So we're seeing people turn to you know, their Facebook messenger chats, Discord servers. A lot of people um, have now started using Mastodon uh, in smaller communities. And these are often platforms where uh, users set up their own forms of moderation, right? And so this moderation can also be more aligned with the values of a smaller community. Um, so we're seeing LGBTQ plus people take advantage of these smaller communities in order to have safer spaces and spaces of you know, acceptance and such. And there are scholars who have theorized around sort of counter publics. And if your identity is at contrast to the dominant norm, um, then you would be considered to be part of a sort of counter public. And counter publics need two things. They need spaces of regroupment, you know, where you can sort of refuel your resources. And then they need public platforms where they can go out there and um, counter dominant norms and really challenge these political issues. And so what I'd like to see is a sort of um, stabilization and growing of these spaces of regroupment where you know people can find solace, they can find like others, and then more safety mechanisms on the bigger platforms for queer people when they do go out and speak out and try to challenge some of these political developments that are taking place. Thank you. I feel like that really comes full circle on our public versus private identity sort of theme for this podcast and the idea of those private curated spaces like Discord where you can um, have that safer space versus the representation that a larger platform affords. So yeah, fantastic. Um, our final question today is uh, what trends do you anticipate in the coming years and what steps can LGBTQ plus individuals and allies take to ensure that these trends are positive and empowering for this community? Okay, well, generally, as a rule of thumb, I try to avoid predicting the future. <laughs> but I will talk to you a little bit about what I see happening now in some of the more current research that I've been doing and some of my hopes. Um, so not predict predictions, but hopes for the future. Uh, so in some of my more recent research, I've been uh, starting to study LGBTQ plus um, people on TikTok, <laughs> looking very much at what are the specific opportunities and affordances that TikTok presents for self-representation and what are some of the constraints that the platform also presents. And this particular study, I'm looking at older TikTokers. So it doesn't take much to be considered older or elder on TikTok. Um, so this study involves people over the age of 30 all the way up to, you know, however uh, old, you know, we've got the gay grandmas and queer granddads in there as well. Um, but so the a lot of the TikTok research focuses on youth, whereas we're trying to look at older users of the platform just to see where identity and age come together. And this research is very early, so I don't have a lot of findings from it. But one of the things that I'm seeing, again, is this sort of adaptability that LGBTQ plus people have to um, be able to use platforms and their technologies in creative, engaging, exciting ways to express themselves, to connect with others, 
to critique politics, to call attention to issues that are coming up. And so, yeah, we're seeing, again, the full range of sort of we're, we're here, we're queer, we're on this platform, and we're making it work for us. On the flip side, TikTok is this platform that has very intense algorithmic curation and sorting. And so anybody who's on the app would know, you know, all I have to do is watch videos for a few days and it picks up on a whole range of data um, from the user in order to kind of put them in a niche of content, uh, sort them into what kind of content they might like and then serve up more and more of that content. And so there seems to be this struggle, especially with the LGBTQ plus users that um, I'm interested in on the on the platform, this struggle for algorithmic visibility, right? In order to have your content delivered to audiences that you want to reach um, and not to audiences that are necessarily discriminating or homophobic. And so this is something that Yes, other platforms use algorithmic curation, but because it's so strong and the main way that people get fresh content on TikTok, it's something that we're having to think about critically as, you know, in what ways does this constrain or curtail people's agency in representing themselves? And how would or should a platform like TikTok give users greater agency? What would it actually look like instead if um, I could tinker more with my algorithm or if I understood more about how this algorithmic curation works? So, so those are some of the directions that we're going in. Some of my hopes for the future is uh, there are kind of ongoing conversations, especially across scholars who look at platform governance and policies. Uh, these conversations have to do with just this. How do we give users more agency? How do we get platform policies to recognize human rights, recognize sexual rights? Sexual self-representation is under that umbrella of sexual rights and human rights. And so how do we, you know, sort of dialogue with platform companies and also get governments nationally and globally interested in these conversations in order to ensure that people really can represent these aspects of their identity that are so important for connecting with others and for expressing yourself. Um, and so I'm hopeful <laughs> that those conversations will reach the people in platform companies that make decisions about algorithms, moderation, technical design, and we'll have to see where that goes. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing some of your current research with us, especially about the, the algorithmic work, because that's absolutely fascinating and definitely very current. And thanks for sharing your hopes with us as well. And finally, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I appreciate it. We want to thank our guests, Simon Joyce and Stephanie Duguay, for speaking with us about the LGBTQ plus experience and privacy past and present. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. 
episode 83 was produced by Stephen Filippi, Amy Britton, Jack Dugan, Rachel Havard, and me, Megan Schaefer. Thank you for listening.